Let's pray. Father, we come in the name of Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit to pray for the illumination of your scriptures. May your covenant kindness come to us this morning, O Lord, as we turn to the gospel of Mark. Your salvation is according to your word alone. You give us an answer to have for those who reproach us because we trust in your word. Do not take the word of truth out of my mouth this morning as I preach, for your people wait for your ordinances. And the reading and preaching of your word is the highest ordinance that we can attend to by your grace. May we keep your law continually forever and ever and walk by the Spirit in liberty, for we seek your precepts. May we speak of your testimonies before kings and not be ashamed. We shall delight in your commandments, which we love, and we shall lift up our hands to fulfill them faithfully. We will meditate on your statutes as we turn now to the Holy Scriptures to hear the words of life themselves, for our good and for your glory. Amen. If you would, stand with me now for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving words, starting in Daniel chapter 4, verse 28. <clears throat> All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes." Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of, of heaven until his hair had grown like eagles' feathers and his nails like birds' claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from, from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out so I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now we turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial in any way, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing the hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. 
they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You can be seated. Many years ago, when R.C. Sproul was still alive and a much younger man, he was sitting in a taxi cab in St. Louis, Missouri, with the great Francis Schaeffer. And as Francis was staring contemplatively out the window, R.C. asked him, what is your biggest concern for the future of the church in America? And without breaking his gaze out of the taxi cab, without hesitation, as if he knew the question was coming, without skipping a beat, he said, statism. Statism is what you have when the state itself becomes the false god or the pantheon of false gods for the people of a nation. Statism is when the government functionally replaces God. The state is the false god that Schaefer thought that the American people, even in the church, would confess is the lord of the land. And in many ways, I think his concern has been validated. But you see, in the days of Jesus, it was Caesar. People literally confessed in the Roman Empire that Caesar is Lord. Caesar required that people honor and worship him as divine. And at first blush, at first read, you may not understand how I'm drawing this out of the text, but that's what preaching the rest of the sermon is for, I I promise. But here's what I want you to understand from this passage. In our fallen estate, we live in a sinful world with false gods and antichrists, some of which are civil magistrates who have a great deal of civil and political power over us. So what in the world are we to do? How should we then live, as Schaefer would ask? Well, here's the big idea, right? I give, I give you a big idea every sermon so that from the smallest to the biggest in the room, as you're hanging out around the kitchen table or the water cooler, as you're eating lunch with coworkers tomorrow, and someone says, what was your sermon at your church about yesterday? You can all with one voice say, this was the big idea, Okay. And usually the big idea is in principle form. Today it's in application form. We must remember that Christ alone is Lord. We must remember that Christ alone is Lord. There is only one true Son of God and sovereign Lord over all the earth. And it's not Caesar, it's Christ. Now here's four reasons from the text that we must remember that Christ alone is Lord. Unexpected alliances form to oppose the true Lord. False gods are ultimately tyrants. False gods imitate the one true Lord. And the true God alone is owed our worship and ultimate allegiance. We'll start with the first one. Unexpected alliances form to oppose the true Lord. We can see after the last conflict with the chief priests, the scribes, right, with, with the, the leaders of, of Israel, with, with all of these men, Right? The elders, the chief priests, and the scribes send the Herodians and the Pharisees. That's what the text tells us. Then they, right? that word for they uh, is, is implying those people from the last passage, sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him, that being Jesus, in order to trap him. Remember, the Herodians, they're, they're big fans of the puppet Jewish government that is subservient to Rome. They like Rome. right? Rome keeps their you know, party in power, so to speak. And the Pharisees are quite the opposite. They don't care for Rome. They're very pious. They're legalistic. The Herodians are more licentious people. They're basically 
Gentiles in practice in, in some ways. But the Pharisees are very pious, faithful Jewish people. Now, Jesus has, con- has had conflict with them before because they're adding to the law. But overall, they're very word or Torah-centric people who prefer uh, freedom from Rome. They're, they're purists. They're separatists, if you will. They're, they want to reform Israel, right? And how are they acting? Well, they're both acting hypocritically. The Herodians are hypocrites here because they are Jews who had zero problem enjoying and engaging with the Roman overlords and accepting and using their currency freely in the land. And yet here they are asking whether or not it's lawful or permissible for Jewish people to use the coin, as if they care. They don't care what Jesus' answer is. If Jesus says you can't use this coin, they're going to continue to do it anyway, right? And then the Pharisees are hypocrites because they claimed total devotion to God alone, and yet here they are partnering with the Herodians, plotting to use the Roman government to trap and kill one of their own people, right? And why are they acting together? What, what are these two people doing together? Well, they're, they're united in their hatred for Jesus. You see, the kingship of Jesus unites people in strange ways, doesn't it? You've probably been in more than one room with other Christians and thought, if I didn't love Jesus and that person didn't love Jesus, we'd never be together. We, we'd never be in the same room. We have nothing in common but Christ, right? I remember I was in my early 20s in a discipleship group. The first time that dawned upon me, uh, I, there was a brother in my discipleship group. I just, I'd still love him. Uh, he's such a faithful brother. But it dawned upon me, man, if we didn't know Jesus, we'd never cross paths. We have nothing in common. Now, the opposite of that is happening here. These people that really have nothing in common other than their hate for Christ have come together to try to trap him and get him killed. Okay? So here's a little application for us. We must understand that our unsaved or our unregenerate allies today will oppose the Lord under the right circumstances tomorrow. Remember that two people groups that might oppose each other today might band together tomorrow to hate and oppose the church of Jesus Christ. Here's what I'm saying. Do not trust in horses nor the strength of man. Trust in the Lord alone. Okay? I'm not saying we we shouldn't partner with people in good and godly endeavors unless they're uh, regenerate and Presbyterians. I'm just saying, watch yourselves. Be careful where you put your trust. Unexpected alliances form to oppose the true Lord. And secondly, we must remember that Christ alone is Lord because false gods are ultimately tyrants. Tyrants are such because they overstep their rightful boundaries. If the dog catcher tries to exert political power over you to enforce the local building codes, he's a tyrant. Why? Because his business is boxers and bulldogs that are on the loose in the neighborhood, not your plumbing and electricity. Does that make sense? Right? He has a lane to stay in as the local dog catcher. I don't even know if we have those anymore, but you get the idea. A man or group of men and women claiming to be God or acting like the Lord are veering way out of the lane that God has assigned them to. They're tyrants. Right? And who was this Caesar? There's lots of Caesars throughout the course of the writing of the New Testament. The first one was Caesar Augustus. And now, as Jesus is holding up this coin, we're dealing with Tiberius, who's the adopted son of Caesar Augustus. Do you remember the Sea of Galilee or Lake Genesaret that Jesus walked on? In the days of Caesar Tiberius, uh, someone built a new port city on that lake, and they renamed it Lake Tiberius. More on that later. So that's the Tiberius that that lake is renamed after. Now, how is this man a tyrant? Well, he was a vile, abusive, predatory sicko. Okay? He used his power to abuse people that he should have cared for, protected, and mentored. 
I would go into more detail, but there's very tiny ears in this room, and most of them are still awake at this point in the sermon. Okay? Suffice it to say, this was a vile, wicked man, right up there with the disgusting Nero that oppresses the church later. Okay? Uh, furthermore, he taxed people without acknowledging them as citizens. Right? There were citizens of the Roman Empire, and then there were subjects, and those are different. The, the poll tax mentioned here, there, in the Greek, there's actually not a Greek word translated as poll tax. It's a loan word from Latin. They basically were like, we don't have a word for this. So we're going to take this Latin word for census, and we're going to transliterate it into Greek and throw it in the New Testament. Right? This is a poll tax. This is the tributum capitis, or head tax. Right? Roman subjects paid it, but not citizens. And Jesus himself in Matthew 17 confirms that this is common practice in the world. He says to Peter, hey, Peter, who pays taxes? Who pays the, 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 these censuses, these customs, these taxes? Is it the sons of the rulers, the kings of the earth, or is it strangers in their lands? And Peter's like, it's, it's the strangers. The sons don't have to pay. And he's like, exactly, right? So basically what Caesar was doing is he was like, I want all of the allegiance. I want all of the allegiance as if I am a father, as if I am a god to you but I'm going to treat you like strangers. Oh, could you imagine treating your children that way? Demanding, requiring of them that they treat you like loving father and mother, but you're going to treat them like, like total tourists in your home. That's the way Caesar uh, treated his people. And, and I, the book of Isaiah tells us that civil magistrates are supposed to be like nursing mothers and fathers. The early church father, Tertullian, called this very tax, the poll tax, a badge of slavery. Caesar apparently used this tax to fund his military. That's how he kept all of these people under his boot. And one source I found said that he used this tax to fund the cult of Roman pagan worship. So this tax flew in the face of the civil and spiritual liberties of the people under his rule. Caesar forced them to use this currency in order to pay the poll tax. Right? The coin that Jesus holds up, it's, it's, this isn't a denarii. Right? If this was a denarii, I would be in a vault somewhere. Okay? Uh, but this is actually a 20-piece from uh, New Zealand. Right? So, you know, Goldie. So this is the closest in weight of all the coins that I have. This is the closest I could come to a, a Greek drachma, which is 4.3 grams. And the, the, the denarius that Jesus is holding up was about 3.9 grams. This is halfway in between those two. If you had a drachma, which was 10% heavier than the denarii, you could not pay this tax with the drachma. Could you imagine that? That's actually happened to me. I overpaid taxes one year, and then they fined me, and the fine uh, was was less than what I, was like a little was more than what I overpaid. And I was like, just keep my money, just keep it, just keep the money. That can no, that's not how it works. So if you had a 4.3 gram Greek drachma, you had to somehow find a lighter silver coin with Caesar's face on it to pay this tax. See how burdensome that would be. This is one of the reasons, I think, why when you read the New Testament, the denarius is far more commonly mentioned than the drachma, because it's a more flexible currency, right? We must remember that freedom isn't Christ alone. Human tyrants, false gods, lead us into burdensome slavery. Whether the false gods are money or power, inanimate things that we're seeking in our life, or whether they're legitimate false gods, like we worship Baals, or we worship the gods of this land, the Norse gods, or the Greek gods, or if they're Caesar, 
They always lead us into tyranny. Francis Schaeffer said this, the Reformation worldview leads in the direction of government freedom, but the humanist worldview with inevitable certainty leads in the direction of statism. This is so because humanists, having no God, just put something at the center. And it inevitably is society, government, or the state. See, when you're a humanist, you believe that man is the chief end of all things. And so where that ultimately leads you is, okay, we'll take the, the best and brightest amongst humanity, and they'll lead us into freedom. Right? We'll assemble the great brain trust of society, call them the state, give them a lot of power. And they'll, we saw this during the pandemic. Just trust the scientists. They'll lead us to safety. There's another application. We must remember that civil magistrates have a lane to stay in. They have a prescription to follow. There's kind of two different views about Romans 13 and the duty of the civil magistrate. There's the person view and the prescription view. I take the prescription view. That is that uh, there's, a, a per, there's parameters set on the office. The person doesn't get to do whatever they want after they become the civil servant. Right? There's an office that is endued with power or uh, trust from God to do certain things. We must remember that God sets the parameters for the magistrate. He gives them authority and he can take it away. Did you hear that in Daniel 4? Nebuchadnezzar gets too big for his britches after God blesses him so great. He's standing on his roof and he's like, wow, look how awesome I am. Look what I've done for me. And before the words were done echoing out of his mouth, God strikes him down, sends him, disciplines him, drives him out into the wilderness, makes him live like a beast for a while, and then restores him. Daniel 4 is a wonderful illustration of this principle that God gives and takes away authority from civil servants. All authority is ultimately from God. Now, we're reminded by this coin in Jesus' hand that false gods imitate the one true Lord. I want you to notice what he says about this particular coin. He mentions the likeness and the inscription. He doesn't talk about it being silver. He doesn't talk about how much it weighs. He mentions the likeness and inscription on the coin. Now, this coin that I have in my hand, this is you know, clearly from 2006. It has Queen Elizabeth II on it. That's whose likeness is on this coin. But on the coin that was in Jesus' hand, I often wonder uh, if he kept the coin. Like, it doesn't say that he gave it back, but I'm sure he did. Uh, that's actually a common trope that uh, magicians and comedians are using these days. We're like, does anybody have a $20 bill? And Because someone thinks they're going to make it, like, turn into something else. And then they just, like, shove it in their pocket and go on like nothing else has happened. I'm sure Jesus gave it back, though. But on this particular coin, on one side was Tiberius' face. That's the likeness on one side. And scholars debate the likeness that was on the other. Some have said that he put his mom. Wouldn't that be so sweet? Right? That's such a sweet idea. I, put my, I love my mom, Livia, so much. I'm going to put her on the other side of the coin. Remember, he's still a vile, evil man. But even vile, evil men sometimes love their mothers. Okay? Uh, but the other scholars think, no, that the goddess Pax, the goddess Peace, the Roman false goddess was on the other side. That seems more likely based on the inscription on that side. By the way, fun fact, uh, the Rome, in mythology, the Roman goddess Pax is the daughter of the king of the Roman gods, Jupiter, and his false goddess, Boo, uh, uh, Justice. And I think that's a brilliant common grace uh, part of their mythology because that's, how, that's where peace comes from. Uh, peace, true peace can only come from the, the true king, and true justice, his justice, okay? 
Now, what about the inscriptions? Well, on the side with Tiberius's face, this is a lot to pack into such a small coin, but it would say Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side, with uh, either his mother or the false goddess, Pax for peace, it said Pontifus Maximus, meaning high priest. Are you catching what this coin is basically saying? It's basically saying, in God we trust, and Caesar is that God. He's brought peace. He's the son of God, Augustus. This is some blasphemous stuff. The true king, the true son of God, the true high priest is holding currency that defies the truth. Tiberius is literally an anti-Christ. And every king, every emperor, every magistrate who blasphemously claims his titles and roles in the world amongst humanity, they're also anti-Christs. They're posers. They're posing as Christ in a world where there's only one. That's Jesus himself. Why did Jesus bring up the likeness and inscription? Well, I think he's invoking these terms and connecting them to authority and obligation. Okay? He's making a point about God's likeness upon humanity and God's inscription upon our hearts. We see this concept of likeness in Genesis 1. God, the, the triune God says, let us make man in our likeness. And then the text says he made them with his image. And Romans 1, you know, remember the church that Mark is writing to has probably already received the book of Romans. In Romans, Paul says what? These people, right, these, these people who have darkened their minds, they've rejected natural law. They've traded the glory of God for the image, the likeness of, of beasts and of birds. They prefer creatures that are beneath them over the creator. We bear God's likeness, so we, he has authority over us, and we owe him something. But then there's the issue of inscription. There's the issue of inscription. We know in Jeremiah 31, and these people would have understood the promise of uh, Jeremiah 31, in the new covenant, God will write his law on the hearts of his covenant people. And we know from Romans 2 that, that natural law, in some sense, is written on the hearts of all mankind, and in our sin, we've rejected that natural law at times. But one writer drew a connection between this word inscription and the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And when you look at Deuteronomy 6, you see a lot of writing language, a lot of inscript or inscripted type concepts. This is what it says in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. What is the Shema saying? Render unto God everything, your full self. It goes on to say, these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write, that is, you shall inscript them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So inscription and likeness matter. Inscription and likeness are about authority, instruction, obligation. Right? These coins, the coin that Jesus is holding up, these denarius, these denarii, I think is the plural. These are from Caesar's mint. Right? They're Caesar's own personal silver that he's minted for his purposes. He uses them for various things, not just the tax. The, the coins are convenient in the empire. And Caesar wants one of them back each year from his subjects. So here's the bigger question. 
They have a question about taxes because they're trying to trap him. Jesus has a bigger question for us. Whose mint are you from? Whose treasury do you belong to? Whose authority has been marked upon your very souls? Application for us is that we must be on the lookout for antichrists. We must reject the false gods and antichrists of our own day, like statism. The state has done what only God can do twice in my lifetime. He's re, they've redefined marriage. First, what they did is they said, okay, marriage is not a covenant between a male and a female anymore. It's a social contract between a male and female. And you can end it. You can get out of it without anybody being at fault. First time in human history, 6,000 years in, that we thought of covenants that way. Essentially reducing it from covenant to contract. And then they said, you know what? This contract, it can be between two men. It can be between two women. Eventually, if something doesn't change, and there's already talk of this in the dark corners of the internet, eventually it will be, well, why can't a 40-year-old man marry a 10-year-old girl? Why not? Eventually it will be, well, why can't three men be married? Or two men and two women be all married? The state seems to have no problem with redefining marriage. Here's another application for us. All people must remember whose likeness we bear as created beings. God made it very clear. When he made us in his likeness, when he made us in his image, he made us male and female. The state and society, much of society, has rejected that. We've rejected the idea that we actually bear someone's image. The rise and triumph of the modern self, we can bear whatever image we choose. We, we, we decide. We, we can't assume that our child that's born with an X and Y chromosome, we can't assume that he's male. He'll decide in a little bit as soon as he can communicate. He'll tell you what he is. We must remember, as the people of the Lord Jesus, that Christ is the image of God that we are remade into after the fall in our redemption as God's people. Another application is this. All people, but especially covenant people, especially the church, must remember whose law, whose inscription is upon our hearts. Natural or general revelation is written on all of our hearts, but special revelation, the gospel, is written on the hearts of us, the new covenant people. Here's the last point for the, for the day. The true God alone is owed our worship and ultimate allegiance. That's what Caesar thought you owed him. That's what Caesar thought his citizens owed him. But that's what we owe the Lord our God alone. Remember the Shema that I just read. Different scholars, they argue, well, why in this passage does the Shema have three things? And why in this passage does it have four? And why does it, why does it kind of change? Look, the, the point of the Shema is to say, people of God, render your whole selves to the Lord. He wants your undivided, undiluted self. Give yourself to no other gods. Amazing. After the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, God's people over and over and over again walk in the ways of other gods. And we have the same struggles in America today. Over and over and over again, the church in the West has, has wandered off, has veered off pursuing other gods, the false gods of statism and pluralism and, and humanism. They have a question about taxes. Jesus makes it about far more. They have a question about whether or not we render under Caesar our tax, our poll tax, or not. Is this okay for us to do 
or not. Let me make it very clear because I'm sure all of you are wondering, what does Pastor Nate think about us paying taxes? Church, the state gets your taxes on April 15th. If you're me, they get it October 15th if they're lucky. Okay, I do my best. I make a vow every year. April 15th this year. Never, never happens, right? There's not a conflict of loyalty by paying taxes to an earthly government. Let me, but let me explain this. You don't have to like what they use your tax dollars for. God will deal with them on that. And you, can, you, can, you live in a great place where you can lobby uh, your, your local and state magistrates. There are literally uh, state assemblymen in other places that are, that are writing bills to try to keep the federal government in check. This is the doctrine of the lesser magistrate uh, at work. We don't not pay our taxes. We pay, and then we go to our civil servants. We go, hey, they're using our money to kill babies, to fund it. Please make them stop. Please do something, right? So the church or, you know, the state gets your taxes, but they don't get you. They don't get your trust. They don't get your unquestioned loyalty. They don't get your hope for a future. They don't get your kids to educate them. They don't get your worship or the honor that is due to God alone. If it comes down to the state or God, we choose God. Let me, let me just say this. I, I hope that I have the, the courage and the fortitude to follow through on what I'm about to say if the day comes. We will never shut these doors for corporate worship ever again. I don't care if a governor that I voted for said we should. He has no authority to take the keys of the kingdom away from me and the other elders of this church and tell us that we can't gather for worship. He doesn't. He doesn't. They can give pious advice. They can give recommendation, but they have no authority here. In the same sense, I can't march into his office and start signing bills for him and say, well, I'm a pastor. I get to do this. That's not how it works. God has delegated his authority to different spheres. And God has commanded that his people do not forsake the assembly of worship. He has commanded that we gather for corporate worship and we honor him. He gets all of us. If it comes down to the state, if it comes down to Caesar or God, we choose God. And if we have to disobey the government in order to be faithful to the Lord, well, we'll remain faithful to the Lord. We don't have to be mean about it. We don't have to be rude. We can righteously and politely resist but we must render unto God all that we are and all that we have. It all belongs to him. At one point in the Old Testament, God says, the silver and gold, it's mine too, right? Everything belongs to him, including Caesar. Tiberius and those like him both in Rome and elsewhere throughout time bear God's likeness and his law is inscripted upon their hearts. And they must be reminded of it. In church, if we don't tell the, the civil servants of the land, if we don't tell the magistrates whose likeness they bear, who will? Who'll tell them? Nobody. It has to be the church. It has to be the average Joe, everyday Christian. It has to be ministers of word and sacrament. It has to be deacons and ruling elders. It has to be us. They must be reminded whose image and likeness they bear. Now, Jesus clearly says, render unto God what is God's and render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And that Greek word for render here, it's kind of interesting. It's not the normal, most common Greek word, Greek verb used for paying taxes, this word render actually means that when you're giving something, when you're rendering, you're giving something that belongs to them. So my question this morning is, since the image of this tyrant Tiberius is on this coin, what exactly do we render under tyrants? What belongs to them from good, faithful, kind, and loving, but righteous and holy people like the church? 
What do we render under tyrants? The first is rebuke. They need to be rebuked. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. God's people have no hesitancy from rebuking civil servants, even Gentile ones. At no point do you see an Old Testament character going, at least not a faithful one, go, ha, you know, Lord, I want to rebuke them according to your law. I want to hold them to the standard of your word. But, you know, they're, they're an uncircumcised Gentile. Like, they don't really care what your word is. Right? There's, there's Old Testament prophets whose ministry is to Gentile nations, and they don't go, you know, Lord, they're just not covenant people. They're not going to care. No. What we see is faithful covenant people rebuking non-covenant people. So whether our civil servants and magistrates, whether a tyrant professes to follow the Lord or not, they need rebuke. We also, we also are to pray for them. Paul makes this very clear as he writes to Timothy. Pray for all men. Pray for rulers and those who are in positions of authority. And there's a type of prayer that we offer up uh, for the sake of tyrants, and they're called imprecatory prayers. And I can't remember his name. He was on a panel with, uh, a Lig- at a Ligonier conference recently. I think his last name is Godfrey or Goodwin. I can't remember. First name's Robert or Bob. But anyway, uh, Pastor Bob, Pastor Robert, was saying that the pattern of imprecatory psalms is that we pray for people's repentance first. Look, look, you're, you're wicked. I'm a wicked sinner. Aren't you a sinner saved by grace? Right? What is your hope for yourself? Forgiveness. Right? For God's mercy. And so as we pray for tyrants, we pray for their repentance. We pray that the Holy Spirit would touch their hearts, that they would be moved by the preaching of God's word, and that they would turn away from their wickedness and begin to be faithful civil magistrates. That's what our prayer for them should be, is that they would repent. But the second clause of the prayer is, Lord, if they will not repent and submit to your ways, remove them from office. Remove them from office. Either kill them or remove them from office through the, through the voting booth, however you want, Lord. And then bring them to repentance later if you if you're still, still will. That's my prayer often for, for tyrants in the world today. They would repent. That they would be removed as mercifully as they possibly could be removed by the Lord. Because if we were in that position, isn't that what we would want Christians praying for us? So we rebuke them, and we pray for their repentance or their removal. But then we also give them righteous resistance. It seems like in today's, you know, today's society, it's kind of like th- th- there's two extremes in terms of what Christians should do. There should just be total pacifism. You just, you just pay your taxes. You just go to church. You just putter to your nine to five. You never say anything about anything. And you just keep your head down and try to be as, quote, holy as possible. And then you die, right? That's, that's your option. And the other option in the spectrum is everybody arm up, gear up, get your tanks. We're storming the Capitol tomorrow, Right? Neither one of those, I I don't think either one of those are biblical. God has laid it out in his word. There is a righteous way to resist. The the maidens, the maidens, that's not the right word, the midwives in Egypt, did they have an assassination plot against Pharaoh? No. They just simply were like, no, we're not going to kill these babies. They just simply just didn't, they didn't comply to, to a wicked instruction. Daniel. In the book of Daniel, right? You have to remember this. This is very, very important because people get messed up when they forget this. When Daniel was like, I'm not going to follow what Darius is saying. I'm going to continue to pray. When he goes home and throws open his windows and prays very publicly, he's not just some nice Jewish boy in exile doing that. He's a magistrate. He's one of the highest ranking officials in the land as he does that. That's how, they re- that's how he resisted. That's how we resist. 
We don't rebel or create revolution as lone rangers. Just a, a, we, we appeal to the higher magistrate through lower magistrates. If necessary, we become, uh, we become like the woman banging on the door of the unjust judge in Scripture. There's actually this great story from church history of, uh, of, of the people of God resisting tyranny in the Roman Empire, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but basically, uh, this group of people, they were either Christians or, or Jews. They were going to be slaughtered. And they went to their local governor like, here's the edict of the emperor. Don't do this. You know we're faithful citizens. You know this is wrong. And they pleaded with him. And they pleaded with him. And they pleaded with him. And eventually, that governor stood against the higher magistrate. That's how you resist as a godly Christian. You, you, write, you write your civil servants. You write your local assemblymen. You call. You go to town halls. You, you pester them kindly if you must. You, you make the law of God known to them. That's righteous resistance. Right? I mentioned at the very beginning of this series that Mark has similar themes to Isaiah. Uh, Mark shows that Jesus is the servant, he's the conqueror, and he's the king. And I mentioned last year during Easter that the resurrection of Christ flies in the face of the authority of Rome and Caesar. Before Jesus, crucifixion was batting a thousand. I mean, it's, it was undefeated. There's like one story out there where a guy survived for like three days afterwards, but eventually crucifixion got him. Like he succumbed to his wounds, right? And there's, there's always that random skeptic that's like, see, crucifixion didn't kill him. He died three days later. Yeah, of what? Be crucified, right? That's how that works. You die from the wounds later. But not just resurrection, but all throughout the gospel of Mark, there's these subtle little hints that Jesus is subverting, subtly subverting the authority of Caesar. Right? He's subtly letting it known that Caesar Tiberius will not have dominion over the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the name of that lake that he walked on? Lake Tiberius. I mean, he's, he's walking on Lake Tiberius. The dominion, nature, and the name Tiberius will not have dominion over Christ. Where did he drive the, the demon legion, which, by the way, is the name of 6,000 soldiers in the Roman Empire at the time led by centurions? He drove that demonic, that, that fleet of demons out of a Gentile man and into pigs, and they drowned in what lake? Lake Tiberias. We see in the Bible there's imagery of mountains being thrown, things being thrown like off of hillsides, hills themselves being thrown into lakes, and that's a symbol of God bringing down earthly and political power. Can any history whiz out there tell me what the symbol, the insignia, was of the legion of Rome that occupied Jerusalem in the days of Christ? What was it? It was a boar. You catching that? You think that's just an accident? That Jesus goes across Lake Tiberias from Jerusalem, goes into Gentile land, takes a legion, but the demon says we're legion, that's his name for himself, drives it into swine, into boars, and then drives that into the Lake Tiberias. Over and over again, Jesus is subtly undermining the claim that Caesar is God. And he does it again in this passage, right? He holds up the coin. He holds up the coin and he says, render unto God what is God's. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. See what he's saying there? These are two different people. In a very subtle way, Jesus is saying, Caesar's not God. There is a true Lord in the land. And it's not Caesar. 
There is a true high priest who brings peace to the earth as the very son of God and God in the flesh. And it's not Caesar. Let us not forget that Christ alone is Lord. And let us call all men everywhere from the lowest stations in society to the highest offices of the land. Let's call those men to repent of their sin and bend the knee to Christ. For his likeness is upon them and his inscription is upon their hearts. And he has claimed authority over them. They are obligated to bend the knee to Christ. Let the hearer understand. Let's pray.